My name is Debbie and I will be reading from God's Word this morning. The first reading comes from Acts chapter 4 verses 8 to 12. Please follow along in your own personal Bibles or devices, otherwise the words will be up on the screens behind me. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And the second reading this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 to 24. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks he called to her and asked would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink as she was going to get it he called and bring me please a piece of bread as surely as the Lord your God lives she replied I don't have any bread only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up. And the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. 
he took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Thanks, Debbie. Morning, everyone. My name's Mark. If you haven't met, I'm one of the, the pastors here at Trinity Church Mowbray. Um, now, we're in the middle week of the school holidays, so things are a little bit different uh, this week. Kids are going to be in for the whole service. So I'm going to give just a minute now for any kids who want to go down to the back with Barb and grab some pencils and some crafts just to keep them amused and entertained throughout the service, or, or any adults who want some pencils and crafts as well to... Keep them entertained through the service. Uh, I'll give you a minute now just to head back there and do that. Right, oh, well, um, probably most of us have seen the latest census results that have been in the news in the last few weeks, showing that um, Christians are now officially a minority in Australia. So the, the number of no religions in Australia has almost doubled over the last decade, which, you know, it's not really surprising news on one level, but still, if you're here this morning as a, as a follower of Jesus, it's, it's a bit discouraging, isn't it? It makes you, you sort of feel like you're swimming against the tide a bit when you hear news like that. Um, now, as these results were being analysed in the media, I happen to be reading this book on the screen here. It's called Being the Bad Guys by Stephen McAlpine. And in a nutshell, the the point that he's making in this book is that Christians in the Western world have gone from being the good guys, where it's a normal, admirable thing to be a Christian, to being just one of the guys, you know, be a Christian, go to church or not, who cares, uh, to being the bad guys where our society and our culture sees biblical values as being immoral. So it's quite quite a shift that's happened there, and the result is the church being pushed more and more to the cultural margins, and, and Christians finding it harder and more costly to live out their faith. And um, perhaps if you're here this morning as, as a follower of Jesus, that's, that's something that's been true in your life, whether it's in your, your family, your workplace, your neighbourhoods, your school, whatever it is, living as a Christian is coming at a greater and greater cost. And it's deeper than just how it affects us, because I'm sure there are people that you know as well, people you know and love who, who don't know Jesus and who you'd love to see come to know Jesus. Um, perhaps you invited them along to our recent life series or our Easter services or, or another Sunday service and they weren't interested, or, or maybe you didn't even invite them because you just know that they're not interested. Um, we can find ourselves discouraged so often and wondering, where is God in all this, what's he doing? 
or maybe you're here this morning just checking church out, checking out what it's all about, and, and you might be asking a similar question. You know, if, if the God of the Bible is so great, then why are more and more people choosing not to follow him? Well, we've spent the last few weeks here looking at the book of 1 Kings, which was written at a time when God's people were extremely discouraged. The book of 1 Kings was hitting the shelves right when Israel were exiled in a foreign land. And and they would have wondered, where is God in all of this? How has he left us here? What's he going to do about it? How has he let this happen? The message of 1 Kings chapter 17, 18 and 19, which we're going to be looking at this morning, speaks powerfully, not just into their circumstances, but into ours as well. We see God bringing about his plans, even when it seems most unlikely. And now I'm going to start by taking us through the events of these three chapters. It's, it's an incredible story. There's, there's all sorts of highs and lows in it that we'll see. And then I want to finish by drawing out two important points that we see about God in this passage. It's a story of God's loving provision, God's spectacular victory, and God's unstoppable plans. Uh, So firstly, chapter 17, we see God's loving provision. Now, just to set the scene, if you've missed the last few weeks with us, the kingdom of Israel has split into two. It was, a, it was a great, big, successful kingdom. There was a bit of a conflict that split in two. There's now a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Neither of them are, are going particularly well as far as following God goes, but the northern kingdom in particular has wandered a long, long way away from God. Uh, there's a guy called Ahab, who's the king. Uh, he and his wife Jezebel have got the whole kingdom worshipping a god called Baal. And with all this going on, a prophet called Elijah arrives on the scene. And Elijah confronts King Ahab and he, and he says to him, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few days, except at my word. In the next few years, sorry, except at my word. And that's exactly what happens. There's a drought throughout that region from, a, from, from that day onwards. Uh, This was one of the warnings that that God had originally given his people years earlier, that um, if they rejected his word, he would withhold rain from them. Uh, Now, this was was a unique warning for God's people at that time. So it's, it's not our place today to assume that just because there's harsh weather or anything like that going on, that that it's a direct punishment from God. But But it certainly was in this case. Uh, God sends Elijah away into the wilderness. He provides him with food and water there. And and then as we heard in our reading, he sends Elijah to live with a widow and with her son. Now, Elijah finds the widow and and, and he says to her, can can I have something to to eat, something to drink? And um, it's it's quite a heartbreaking scene that we see there. This widow, she tells Elijah, no, I I can't do that. I've, I've only got enough food left for one more meal for my son and I. We're going to eat that meal and then we're going to starve to death. It's a, it's a heartbreaking scene. Imagine being that widow, being in that position with your son. Uh, but God miraculously provides for this family. Uh, her flour, the widow's flour and her oil somehow never run out. There's always food on the table for them. And then God provides in an even more amazing way for them. The widow's son dies. This is, this is her last remaining family member. 
And of course, she's, she's upset. She blames Elijah. Elijah turns to God and he says, God, why have you done this to this family? And God answers Elijah's prayer by raising the son back to life. So we have God's loving provision. And then in chapter 18, there's God's spectacular victory. Uh, now, up until this point, we've had three years of drought, which is pretty, pretty hard to imagine on a day like today. But there's a, there's a severe famine in the land. They haven't had rain in three years. And Elijah, he comes along and he meets up with a guy called Obadiah. Now, Obadiah, we read, works for Ahab. He, he's King Ahab's palace administrator. So he's got a lot of power in Ahab's kingdom. We also read that Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel, Ahab's wife, was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them and supplied them with food and water. Uh, So this is a guy who is courageously living out his faith. If he gets caught doing this, he's in, in big trouble. Obadiah arranges a meeting between Elijah and Ahab, the king, and, and Elijah confronts the king. He says to him, you have brought this drought on Israel by abandoning God's commandments and worshipping Baal. And then he says to him, look, all right, let's see which God is better. Who's better, God or Baal? And so the showdown begins. It's held on Mount Carmel. This is what Mount Carmel looks like at the moment. Probably a few less power cables back in Elijah's day, but apart from that, pretty similar. Uh, representing Baal, we have 450 of his prophets. Representing God, we have just Elijah. And the winner is, as Stephen showed us in the All Ages spot just before, the winner is the one, the God who can set a sacrifice bull on fire. Seems like a pretty reasonable thing for God to be able to do. Uh, so the Baal prophets, they come along, they choose their bull, and all day long they, they pray to God. They pray to Baal, sorry. They, they slash themselves with swords. They, they bleed everywhere to try and get Baal's attention. But nothing happens. Baal doesn't show up. And then Elijah steps up to the plate. He, he gets four massive jars of water and pours them all over the bull, all over the wood. Um, which, you know, makes it, makes it pretty hard to light a fire. And then we read, at the time of the sacrifice, that's, that's important, I'll come back to the idea of a sacrifice a bit later, but at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. What happens next? Well, we read that fire of the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice. The wood, the stones, the soil, it also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And to complete the victory, God answers Elijah's prayer and sends heavy rain on the land. The drought is over. God's spectacular victory. And finally, in chapter 19, we have God's unstoppable plans. Now, that's a pretty big high in chapter 18. That's Elijah's walking away from that feeling pretty good about things. Um, But but then things go downhill quickly. Uh, Queen Jezebel, 
finds out about what's happened. And, and instead of saying, look, isn't God great? Maybe we should worship him instead. Instead of doing that, she promises to kill Elijah. Uh, Elijah hears about this and obviously he's a bit, bit concerned. If a, if a queen wants you dead, that's generally not a, not a good thing. Um, but he's also bitterly discouraged as well. God's victory in chapter 18, it seems to have changed nothing. Israel are, are always going to follow their king. Israel's king seems to always be following his queen. And Israel's queen is murderously opposed to God. Nothing has changed. Israel is still rejecting God. And Elijah has had enough. He just wants to die. And in the midst of this, God draws near to him. Uh, God gives him food and drink to strengthen him. And he also leads Elijah to the very same mountain where all those years ago, Moses received the Ten Commandments. And Elijah, he says to God, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. It's, pretty, it's a pretty down time in his ministry. And, and God says to him, Elijah, go out, go out and stand on the mountain. My presence is about to pass you by. And so Elijah goes out, he stands on the mountain, and, and we read that a, a powerful wind flies past him, but, but we read that the Lord was not in the wind. Uh, we read that a, an earthquake came, but God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a, a fire, but God was not in the fire. And finally, there was a gentle whisper. God was present in his word. And he speaks to Elijah and, and he says to him, Elijah, there are, there are three men, three men I'm going to raise up, and I'm going to use those three men to bring about my judgment on Israel for rejecting me. But that's not all. I'm going to spare 7,000 people who have been faithful to me, 7,000 people who haven't worshipped false gods. And so can you see that even in what seems like a, a completely hopeless moment, God has a plan that no human opposition can stop, not even the king and queen. It's a plan to bring judgment, but also a plan to save people as well. So there you go, God's loving provision, God's spectacular victory, and God's unstoppable plans. It's a, it's a roller coaster ride of a storyline, all sorts of highs and lows. But what are we supposed to take from it? What are we supposed to take from all of this? Well, firstly, there is no name above God. We've got Baal, and we've got God, and we've got the question of which one is worthy of being worshipped. That's the question that Elijah asks the people. He says to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. You, you can't have a foot in both doors. And perhaps, it's, perhaps it's worth asking, why would the Israelites worship Baal in the first place? They seem to have a, a pretty good God, a God who's rescued them from Egypt, brought them into a promised land, given them a, given them a pretty good kingdom. Why would they reject their God who had done so much for them? Well, there's three reasons that come to mind, I think. Politics, prosperity, and personal freedom. Politics, prosperity, 
and personal freedom. Um, so firstly, politics. You've got the king and the queen who worship Baal. It's, it's pretty good to be on the right side of the people who are in power, isn't it? To, to do what they want you doing. Uh, prosperity. Well, Baal was a god of rain. He was, he was supposed to be a god who could bring good rainfall. Uh, rainfall is obviously an important thing, and so it couldn't hurt to be on good terms with the rain god. And then finally, there's this personal freedom. The God of the Bible might be a, a pretty good, powerful God, but he also has a lot of rules and commands, whereas Baal lets you do pretty much whatever you want. That's pretty tempting. So politics, prosperity, and personal freedom. And if we're being honest, these are, are real temptations for us today just as much as they were for the Israelites back then. Putting God first in my life seems, you know, like a pretty, pretty fair enough, pretty easy thing to do until it impacts a relationship I have with someone, until it puts my nose out of joint with influential people, until it costs me something or until it stops me from doing something that deep down I really want to do. Politics, prosperity, personal freedom. Can you think of a time when living for God has perhaps cost you in one of those areas? Or when going after one of those things has, has drawn you away from God? Or perhaps for you, a barrier for choosing to, to follow God and to live for him is that you'd have to make sacrifices in one of those ways. Politics, prosperity, and personal freedom. See, one kings, it's, it's so much more than just ancient history. It's God's word for us today. And as attractive as it might have been for the Israelites to worship Baal, we see clearly in this passage that God is superior. Baal is meant to be a rain god, but he can do nothing to stop the drought. Three years, there's nothing he can do about it. The widow who Elijah goes and lives with, she's, she's not an Israelite. She lives in an area called Sidon, uh, which is where Baal is the local god. She, she probably would have been a Baal worshipper. But Baal hasn't been able to help her. She's about to starve to death. Only God can provide for her. And then, of course, we see the showdown in chapter 18. Mount Carmel was where Baal was worshipped. It's, it's basically his home ground that the game's being played on. We've got 450 of his prophets versus one of God's. God's bull is soaking wet. Can you see the, the odds are stacked in Baal's favor in every way? And yet God is victorious. He's the clear winner. And then finally, the rain comes in God's timing. It's clearly God who brings the rain. The overall point here is clear. It's that nothing or no one else apart from God is worthy of our worship. There is no name above God. And secondly, there are no circumstances beyond God. God provides for Elijah in the wilderness. He provides for the poor family. He brings the son back to life. Even while Ahab and Jezebel are off killing the prophets, God is using Obadiah to save lives. He's got his man on the ground doing his job. 
even as Elijah despairs about the hopelessness of Israel's spiritual state, God is still in control. The point of the the wind, the earthquake and the fire on the mountain is that God is present and active through his word. Even if it doesn't seem spectacular or effective at the time. See, God is just as much in control as Elijah stands on that mountain alone and discouraged. As he was a few weeks earlier on another mountain when fire consumes the bull and when the people praised God. And God already has his plans in motion. His judgment is coming. He's appointed the people who are going to carry it out and he has set aside already the people who will escape. The the circumstances that overwhelm Elijah and, and would overwhelm any of us don't worry God in the slightest. So there's no name above God and there are no circumstances beyond God. And this, this is as true today as it was back then. In fact, we have an even clearer picture of it now than even Elijah did back then. Because as we read in the, the New Testament book of Hebrews, uh, God spoke in the past through the prophets. But in these last days, these days that we're living in, he has spoken to us by his son. God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Uh, 1 Kings is more than just a gripping storyline. It's preparing God's people then and now for what Jesus was going to come and do. Uh, As we read about Elijah and the widow in chapter 17, it's preparing us for another son who will die and be raised back to life. Uh, In chapter 18, the sacrifice that God uses to declare his victory is preparing us for another sacrifice, one that will signal God's ultimate victory. And that's the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, dying in our place to bring us to God. The crucified, resurrected Jesus is the only one who can save us. We we read it in our Acts reading just before. Salvation is found in no one else For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus alone. The events of Elijah's day are preparing us to live with Jesus as our king. There's no name above Jesus and there are no circumstances beyond Jesus. So have you made Jesus your king? Have you made Jesus your king? Is that a decision that you have made? That that trusting in Jesus is the only way to God? That that Jesus is worth going all in for? Uh, Is Jesus just just a nice part of your life? Or is he the one who owns your life? Is he the one who calls the shots in your life? If this is something that, that, that you're still working out, still thinking through, um, we'd, we'd love to be as helpful as we can as a church for you as you, as you think through those next steps. We're running a, an event called Christianity Explored in a, in a couple of weeks' time. We meet on Monday nights and we'll, and we'll go slowly through the Gospel of Mark and we'll, we'll unpack the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and, and we'll be working out, is Jesus 
worth following? Is Jesus worth giving our lives to? Um, come and have a chat with me or go onto our website and have a look if you, if you have more questions about that. Uh, if you're someone here who has made that decision to trust Jesus and to, and to live with him as your king, are you committed to trusting Jesus in all circumstances? Do you believe that his word is effective and his purposes are certain regardless of the circumstances that we see around us? When we look on the news and the the statistics seem to tell us that God's people are, are on the wrong side of history, when following Jesus comes at a cost, when sharing with people about Jesus is hard and it doesn't seem to make any difference, when all these things happen, Jesus is still in control. His word is still powerful. His plans are still unstoppable. Do you trust in that at all times? You know, it, it shouldn't surprise us that many of the countries around the world where, where the gospel is spreading and, and the church is exploding with growth, uh, they're also the countries where Christians are being most heavily persecuted. It's God's way of showing us that there are no circumstances that are beyond him. When we look at the cross where Jesus laid down his life for us, we, we see two things, I think. Um, firstly, we see that God held nothing back in his love for us. He sent his own son to die for us. God is worthy of everything that we can give him, everything and more. Second thing we see is that in the worst of circumstances, God's own son dying, God achieved the most wonderful of outcomes, saving us, bringing us to God. There's nothing that we face today that's beyond God's purposes. Elijah's experience, the the, the highs and lows of what he experienced, shows us things about God that are clearly revealed to us today in Jesus. It shows us that God is alone worthy of our worship and that no circumstances and no opposition can get in the way of his good purposes. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we praise your name above all other names. You alone are worthy of our worship. Even in seasons of discouragement, we trust that you are powerfully at work in ways that are beyond our understanding, bringing your good purposes to fulfillment through Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to live confidently in this knowledge. Amen.